So Godfrey, apparently the SEC is the best conference in the country, and the Big 12 and the AAC are both awful. That's what you gathered from big tw- from from bowl play, right? Um, what I gathered from bowl play was that um, I didn't watch a ton of it, and um, I think a, I think a lot of people just don't care. I think or like coaches and players, and and I hate that we're gonna have to start the show doing what we've we've said for the last six weeks, but I really I really feel like we need to because someone thought it. Someone thought it wise to keep score by conference in these bowl games, and we are never we're not gonna hear the end of this until signing day. Oh, way, way beyond that. that this was, the SEC was overrated all the way from like the moment the Alabama-Ohio State game ended through like the first two months of this season before. No, no, th- through like two weeks ago. Uh, the oh. entire season, the SEC was overrated because they stunk in bowls last year. And, and by the way, stinking in bowls meant going like seven and five. So, um, no, we'll hold on to this for as long as it serves our purpose. Um, I talked to an SEC coach last bowl season who I asked them about their bowl game and I, and the coach told me that he had been out recruiting until 36 hours before the bowl game. Like in other words, he had not been with the team until 36 hours before the bowl game. Does that sound to you like this? This is, these are normal circumstances. That sounds to me like what Missouri was doing with um, the Savannah state basketball game the other day. One of their assistants was out recruiting. He wasn't even on the bench for the game. Not, I, people, uh, I guess we're just going to, I tell you what, you know, we're going to, we're going to pick up arms. We're going to kill narratives. That's what we do here. Thank you for joining us, by the way, and happy new year. Um, as long as we have to hear about uh, conference bowl records, I, I will continue to impart on people how little this actually matters. Um, real fast, if you want to break down the SEC bowls, um, uh, I guess, is, is there a least impressive performance amongst the winners? We'll, we'll talk about Texas A&M in a second. Um, you know, Auburn did what they needed to to avoid, I think, a total uh, uh, psychological breakdown. Um, Arkansas was uh, very much the more talented team by far over Kansas State. Um, as we sort of build towards the impressive stuff, um, jump in here as I don't have a list in front of me. Well, Florida was definitely the least impressive overall, but they didn't win. Um, right, I was thinking more of the, of the, of the terms of like um, Mississippi State, efficient, solid. Yeah, they were fine. I mean, they all, you know, Auburn, watching that game, I didn't end up that impressed with Auburn. Uh, you know, if you just look at the box score from it, it looks like they crushed a really good offense. And then if you watched the game, you saw Paxton Lynch forgetting how to throw a ball accurately. Um yeah, that's that's not completely fair either. Auburn looked good in the second half. I'll say that. Um, but no, I mean they all they all did what they were supposed to do. LSU um, event, gave up some points, but eventually ran over uh, Texas Tech. That's what was supposed to happen. Mississippi State really, really was a good team this year. I think because they got whomped by Alabama, um, because they never really looked like a top five or ten caliber team, we kind of forgot about them. But they were solid top 20 team and and for that program doing that again winning nine games again what 19 in two years that's that's a very very strong accomplishment in that division um going through the list still, lsu I, uh looked good texas uh texas Tech's defense horrific still yeah a nightmare worst run defense in a power conference but People are worried. People are talking now about whether or not they're going to make a change from Cam Cameron and talking about the fact that they hung like fifty or whatever. It's Texas Tech. It's an exhibition game. Again, doesn't matter. Um, not to take anything away from LSU, I, w- I will say I was surprised to see them as consistent as they were. 
um, against a team that I thought was pretty much uh, less talented them in, in every matchup in terms of LSU's offense versus Texas A&M's defense. But at least, I mean, you couldn't find any level of of execution, not to sound like a coach cliche, those last couple of weeks for LSU. So, so you know, bully for them. Um, LSU, I was awake way. for 30-some-odd hours at one point <laughs> over New Year's, not, not for celebration, because I took a red-eye home and got delayed from the Rose Bowl. And when I got back to my home around 9 a.m. Central Time, I had to, like, come in and walk the dog and, like, get the mail and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I thought, I'm so screwed up on time, nothing is going to lull me into at least taking a nap. You know, I'm, I'm not much of a day sleeper. Um, and then the Tax Slayer Bowl came on. So are we counting like the, the like the, the, it was, and by the way, what a narcotic the Tax Slayer Bowl was. Um are we counting the tax layer ball as some sort of um, chess-beating example of the SEC's dominance? <laughs> For Georgia, I was kind of, I mean, I, I can tell you, you know, it was good that, that that underclassmen stepped up and yada, yada, yada. But no, I mean, barely beating a Penn, not only Penn State, but Penn State without Hackenberg. Um, Penn State without Hackenberg, who didn't really fall off without Hackenberg, by the way, but that's a different story. Um, uh, you know, that's no, that, that is nothing. Basically, like, like, who was it? Andy Hutchins, I think, for SB Nation yesterday, I guess, pointed out, you know, basically the SEC teams did what they were supposed to do. Now, some, some went above and beyond. Alabama was supposed to beat Michigan State. They weren't supposed to win by 38. Ole Miss wasn't supposed to win by 28. Some of these teams looked legitimately good. Tennessee, I, I, I felt bad bagging on Northwestern all year, but they really were a mediocre team. But Tennessee beat them by 39. So I'm, I'll brag a little bit on my old Miss pick because uh, you're 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 no more knowledge you're, you're you're never more knowledgeable about one team in this business uh, um, than you are your alma mater unless you're like a beat writer. So just by default, because of the people in my life, because of proximity, I I, I still have three and a half hours away from my campus and all that. I know a lot about Ole Miss uh, probably at all times. Um, I joked on here that I talked to a coach who said, you know, hey, we're going to do the exact opposite of what we did last year. That in tandem, they are as they're they good enough, if not great, defense against Oklahoma State with or without the Kandichis. I thought that was way overblown relative to the game. And then, uh, I mean, my gosh, what they were able to do to Oklahoma State's defense. I felt confident about that one, so I'm just going to go ahead and pat myself on the back there uh, and stretch it out. I will say this. I'm going to go with a contrarian view for the offseason. I don't think that the stupid bull bounce is going to Arkansas this year. Everyone wants to make that joke. I'm going to be the contrarian. I think Arkansas is slowly coming around to what they think the Bielema era is going to be. I don't think they're talking about 10 wins next year the way they were going into this season. I think the dumb money and the insane expectations, everything that's coming to a head, it has to be Tennessee. I don't they, think it's going to be stupid with Tennessee. I think I, the, now. I think look, well, let me put a caveat on them because because I, I agree with what you're about to say. I think <laughs> they're going to be a contender in the East. They were technically a contender this year. They are a very talented team. All that being said, the circumstances are different. It's not a team that oh okay they might get to ten this year and oh we're kind of going to get no you have to beat Florida next year. You have to beat Georgia in a, with a first-year head coach. You have to win the East next year. You well, absolutely I, have to. And you have to be more competitive than you ever have been, if not beat Alabama. Well, I mean, they, they led Alabama with three minutes left this year. So, I mean... Well, and they had, they had Florida dead to rights. 
Yeah. I'm, I'm willing to forgive the Alabama one. That's a good, that's a good performance. Uh, Florida, the way they ended Florida. No, I mean, let me, let me put it this way. When I talk about expectations for Tennessee, I'm talking about, you know, the, what the national guys will say, Ten, you know, the locals are, are going to, going to just be insane. And that's, you know, it is what it is there. But when I saw, you know, the more national people talking about Tennessee and, and, you know, obviously previewing the bowl bump to come. Honestly, we had written Tennessee off too much to begin with. This, I think the bowl bump actually just kind of catches them up to where they should have been all along. They had, you know, they, they sustained their gains this year. That's one of the things from a staff perspective that I always try to look for. When you're a team that surges, uh, when you go from, you know, like 60th to 20th or something like that, uh, chances are there's a little bit of artificiality in that bounce, and you're probably going to, regress a little bit the next year it's really hard to sustain that level without regressing um and tennessee did that they were something i'm, I'm trying to remember they're like 18th last year in smp plus they're 22nd right now um and you know i guess technically they have a chance they're only a decimal point behind uh number 20 and 21 so if alabama kills clemson or something they could rise to 20th maybe um so I, that that they sustained those gains with such a young roster tells me a lot Yes, uh, I think they're going to be a top fifteen t- caliber team next year. Not not top five, not top seven, or anything like that. But and, I think and that's and that's the difference. That's the swing point right there. Is that what I'm seeing here? And again, I, I'm trying to divorce f- myself from the fact that I live in the backyard. What I'm seeing here is an SEC program that has been of no national relevance in going on. Eesh. I mean, they went to the conference title game in seven, and they were they still weren't part of the national picture then. I mean, go back, go back, go back. Point is, I don't know. I mean, basically, since their national title year, or maybe 01, I think was the last time they were in the conversation. Um, this is a program, this is a fan base that expects to be a top five to top seven team next year. It's going to be fun to watch. I'll put it that yeah, way. Yeah, that, um, that I can't speak to. But yes. uh, looking at their schedule next year, though, uh, I think Bill, I think Bill, you like just to, just. I don't want to disagree with you on this. I think you've been dead on i think most people have been dead on i think that the tennessee fan base because the because of what's been built up these past years is like like a step and a half ahead of their own reality but they're still going forward which feels like they're not does that make any sense at all sort of but uh the last thing i'll i'll just point out their schedule next year uh their road trips are bristol speedway for a, a rebuilding virginia tech team that could be good but might not be uh, at Georgia, which is going to probably be tricky. At A&M, who the hell knows. At South Carolina, at Vanderbilt. They get Alabama at home, and they probably won't win, but they get them at home. They'll probably beat Florida. I realize what that sounds like to say. Uh, and then their home stretch is at South Carolina, Tennessee Tech, Kentucky, Missouri, and at Vanderbilt. Um, I, I'll frame this the way I did it with, like, Iowa in the, in the, when I said, you know, a top 30 team could go 10-2 and two with the schedule Iowa has. A top 15 team will go 11 and one with that schedule. You don't have to be a top five team to win the East and be very, very impressive. Now at Georgia is tricky. I don't know enough about Georgia at this point. Nobody does, but that's, that's on the table with them only being a top 15 team. And that's going to be interesting. You know, the secret, the secret loss on that schedule is to me at Vanderbilt. Uh, I'm just hey man, this is the again. This is the intersection of fact now, and everything else. And there's another okay. thing. I'm gonna go with everything else. Now there's another thing going on here too, and that is that Tennessee just you know peed itself in close games, and and, and it came from yes. the top down. And that's the other you know 
when you improve slightly and you have a bad record in close games, a lot of time that's that's kind of unlucky and it and it just kind of reverses itself. But we saw the the symptoms we saw backing off against Oklahoma, backing off every time they had a third or fourth down against Florida. Like they had that game, they were being aggressive, they were getting into the backfield, they were doing everything right, and then you know fourth and seventeen, they're like, oh, we won't attack here, and they give up a sixty-yard touchdown. The mentality ha- they have to figure out how to put games away. And that's not something that, that just simple slight, slight improvement will do that. That's a mindset thing. And that might never, ever change. That could completely kill the entire Butch Jones era. They have to prove it won't. So now to change the uh, subject to another kind of uh, bowl annoyance of sorts, um, I feel bad, like calling a guy out who's not going to re- listen to this. It feels like, you know, the, the old, the, the previous version of subtweeting and all, but there's a, a column in the Tulsa world today um, uh, today being Tuesday, that kind of made me crazy, and, and I have to bring it up. And uh, it, it's basically, the title is Bob Stoops has embraced change, can he embrace one more? The idea is that because, because OU has to play in the Big 12 and has to get, quote, you know, a gimmicky offense uh, to keep up with Baylor and TCU, they're ill-prepared to take care of the big boys of the world, and they got pushed around. They didn't have the line play necessary to compete with Clemson. That last part is absolutely correct because Clemson might have the best combined offensive and defensive line in the country. If, if Alabama doesn't, Clemson does. You, you got the two best in the, in the title game. But the, that's it. That's the, that's the entire thing. Clemson had a better line, the end. And um, OU's solution for this is to get to recruit better linemen, get a couple studs on, on the line, and watch everything else fall into place. But because, <laughs> because this is a, a, a column and because you have to you know, write a certain number of words, the, it, it got to a pretty weird place. And at the very end, uh, it says... Uh, Bill's getting mad. Here it comes. So what's the solution? Or OU sort of has to stick with the gimmicky offense to keep up with Baylor, TCU, and the rest. Now, timeout right there. Uh, Clemson's offense is really not that much different than Baylor's or TCU's. Uh, time in. Uh, and no need to deride winning nine Big 12 titles in 17 seasons. The spread works, but only to a degree. Maybe a better solution would be to leave the Big 12 for the SEC or the Big 10 and get back to a more traditional offense that can dominate the line of scrimmage like Clemson. Clemson, the spread team that ran the ball out of a spread with high tempo, and Alabama did last week. The league's grant of rights, and then he just starts talking about the grant of rights and how long they have to leave. But my God, like, that was a... You picked up on the point. The point was that Clemson had better line play and then went into an insane direction with it. No, no, just recruit better linemen. Hope that, as I pull up the commit list for um, Oklahoma this year, hope that four-star defensive tackle Chris Daniels of Euless Trinity is awesome. Hopefully, Hope he lives up to the hype. Hope that you get a, a couple more big guys. Hope that these a couple of JUCOs that you just signed turn out to be really, really good on the offensive line. The end. Like, the, uh, OU's offensive line was amazing in 2008, 2007 and eight, where they had like the big, you know, 6'6", 335 pound average or whatever that was. Um, they can do that again. And if they do that again, if they recruit better up front, that's all that freaking matters. And now I sound like a hot take artist. Keep going. No. I'm fine. Go to church. That's it. Now that's my whole point. I just this this doesn't have to be complicated. This doesn't have to you know capital M mean something. It just meant that they, their lines weren't as good as, as Clemson's. Okay, I'm gonna um I'm gonna I'm gonna see it, raise it, and top it. Oh, Ready? raise it. Okay. Woo! Look at yep. that. Off season. You know why? You know why all this? 
Do you, do you know why all this is happening, Bill? All right. This is just this is this is just um, the the whole mission of this thing, as we feel out this podcast, <laughs> is to kill narrative, either with reporting or numbers or, or just basic reason or yelling. Okay, and yelling. This is Alabama's fault. <laughs> all right. Yeah. I am not for or against Alabama. And chances are, given the, the, the little bit of market research that we've done on our audience, that uh, you are not one of the talk radio troglodyte types that, it, that, are, that crawl out of Bessemer, holler on the AM radio. That's, that's not your – this is not your bag, okay? Um, I have nothing against Alabama. I have nothing against Clemson for whatever. They're two football teams. Clemson needs to win this football game. I'm not saying they're going to. I don't think they are. Clemson needs to win this football game because we are allowing a certain settling, a certain malaise, just this consistent dumbingness. It's 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 a parable. It's it's a it's almost a, a byproduct of the way that Saban teams win football games, of like this slow, dumb inevitability, a leaning, just a a grinding down. I hate that word grinding. It's overused. This is all that, okay? I'm ex- I'm exhausted by this concept <laughs> of seeing Nick Saban is going to be the greatest coach in the world. Alabama has to be the blueprint. I'm convinced and, and I and I'm backed up by this and talking to coaches and talking to people in the industry that this tree of his that has really borne not much fruit other than him is propped up and amplified and these guys get job after job after job strictly because of him and and nothing else i feel like this is an infection that's just spreading across college football okay there are and look in no way shape or form like in that in that uh tulsa world article can you can you show me that what nick saban and what urban meyer did and what tom herman's offense was last year that's not the same thing no that's not even close this idea that because it feels like we're on the eve of another Alabama national title, that this is the only way to succeed, that this is the only way to win. It's exhausting. I think it's terrible for the but, sport. I think it's it's not because one team keeps winning titles. It's not because it's, it's Alabama. It has nothing, nothing to do with that. It has to do with this, like, dead, wet blanket that falls over college football. The inevitability is inevitability is bad in any sport. It's horrific for college football. We complained for days about the about the margins in the bowls, right? In the New Year's New Year's Six bowls, if you don't have something explode and eight laterals and you know backwards passes into the end zone and Duke, Miami, Arkansas, Ole Miss, if you don't get that once every two weeks, people talk about how boring this, the sport. This sport needs insanity, and this is the this is the antithesis to that. By the way, uh, part of that insanity uh, gave us Alabama in the playoff because if Hunter Henry's backwards, oh crap, hopefully this finds Alex Collins lateral against Ole Miss, doesn't find Alex Collins and Ole Miss wins that game, they, they win the SEC. Um, well, and, and, and to that matter, so does Iowa State coming out of nowhere and, and destroying an Oklahoma – or not destroying, but maybe just literally like throwing – Throwing metal objects into like a working jet engine—that's what they did to Oklahoma State's offense that night a couple years ago, and that put Alabama in the playoff instead of LSU and Oklahoma State. And that's another Alabama national. Yeah, I, I mean, this is—I'm not sure. 
Like I'm, I, I want to frame this to where it doesn't sound like, oh, this guy just hates Nick Saban or he hates. It's not about. I hate everybody that. else. It's. It, it's 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 just about the way these things seem to seem to bubble up the stupidity. Well, I, this this concept that, that you know, if you're Oregon or Baylor, you're never going to be uh, consistent or respectable, able to. That's that's just not true. The. The, I, I, what drives me crazy is is basically kind of the misinterpretation of the Saban blueprint. Like you have to have a Saban person to do it. It's crazy. The Saban blueprint is recruit better than anybody else, uh, be as organized as, as anybody else, uh, develop your guys as well as anybody else, and win games. I mean, that's he has his own flavor to that. But basically, if they don't recruit top talent – uh, and if they aren't, if he, if, you know, if he isn't as organized as he is, then, you know, th- then none of this happens. But other guys are organized. And if you, you know, saying, you know, hiring Kirby Smart, for instance, firing a guy who I- engineered 10 win seasons about just about every year um, because you want the, you know, the, the, the Saban acolyte to replace him uh, drives me crazy. Maybe it'll work, but I, when has yeah, it? It worked? hasn't. I mean, that doesn't mean it can't, but it hasn't yet. And, and people still, yeah, you, you just, uh, uh. And that's the main criticism against Muschamp. And, and honestly, I think if Muschamp is successful at South Carolina, it's because of the things he's already said up front, that he is going to embrace whatever offense is necessary to win. I don't think Roper is going to to stick to the blueprint that he built under Cutcliffe at, at Tennessee and Duke and Ole Miss. I think they're going to run tempo and spread and every other terrible buzzword that every dumb redneck in, in Birmingham hates, okay? And then Muschamp's just going to be what he is, which is a damn good recruiter and a damn good defensive head coach. If they're successful. Now, he hasn't well, been successful at all yet. He just okay? hasn't been successful since 2012 in any role. What I'm talking about, you don't hire. I'm sorry, but you don't hire someone at Florida to have that peak, that that singular peak of success. I'm talking about, give me a B, like if Saban's the A plus, give me just the B to the B minus consistency. You know, he was a C at best at Florida, where the expectation level is so high. People are hiring these guys for jobs that you aren't talking about. People hiring Saban assistants um, yeah. to turn around Tulsa. Okay, you're talking about them getting major jobs where the expectation is you're going to replicate what Saban has done, and that has not happened yet. And frankly, I think a lot of people are tired of hearing it, tired of seeing it. Do we want seven Alabamas? (laughs) Nobody wants that. We are fired. Nobody wants that. The best episode ever, I think. I'm just so I'm so sick of this. I'm so sick of us talking about Alabama and trying to find the the interesting look. Boil it down. They want to make everything inevitable, okay? They want to reduce every single potential problem or potential solution for anyone. They want it all to feel inevitable, and that is the worst possible feeling that college football can have as a whole, and that's what we have right now. And it it makes perfect sense to apply that if you have the best recruiting in the country. But if you don't, if you have anything less than the best uh, recruiting in the country, then it becomes a, a little more difficult to pull off. No, I, I, we are, you know, it, it, winning breeds imitation, and that's fine. Um, I just, I mean, in this case, it really does feel like they're imitating all the wrong things. And especially when you've got Urban Meyer. You know, if you're going to, Craft a blueprint. Meyer has almost as many national titles as uh, as Saban does. 
And Meyer spawned the best, you know, a, a guy who's going to probably make like $18 million a year at Texas in a couple of years, and Tom Herman. Um, you know, he is the best evaluator of assistant coaching talent I've seen in a long time. Imitate him. Like, that's, that's at least a fun... And that's what kills me, Bill, is I, I talked to people in November and December when Herman was, was – was, he still hasn't peaked. He's, he just continues to skyrocket in buzz. And when we talked about replacing – if Jimbo Fisher went to LSU or talk, if, if they did fire Miles at LSU or, or talking about you know any of these – or Georgia for that freaking matter. I get that Kirby Smart's an alumnus, but so is Mo Muschamp, okay? No one wanted to sniff Tom Herman. Because he doesn't have Saban next to his name. This is not good. This is not healthy. It's not even logical. Because we've ran, we've run this experiment a couple times. By the way, Derek Dooley was a special teams coach. If you want to talk about how he instills <laughs> leadership and program management and all of his assistants. I, I, I admire the hell out of Saban. Oh. I, mean, I actually, part of me, when everybody kind of rebels against something, I, I start to tend to root for it. Because as I've said before, I'm antisocial. Um, so I don't really mind in, like, in an individual occurrence that uh, Alabama wins another national title. I enjoy it because everybody races to proclaim the, the Saban era dead every single time they lose, that once a year when they lose a game. Um, but right. uh, I, I, I just, it, it, there's such small-mindedness sometimes with the way we react or the, you know, the, the lessons we learn. Saban has succeeded, so we have to be Saban, and that's absurd. You can't be Saban. You can't. You can't be that good at recruiting and that organized. That's like Bill Snyder level organization and Pete Carroll level recruiting. That you can't imitate that. And just because somebody's been in an office close to Saban's doesn't mean he can imitate it. But yeah. And by the way, if you again, this is not about Alabama. Show me. Show me any other Alabama, and I'm fine with it. Show me. Uh, show me Nick Saban in 2000, going from losing to ULM in 2007 to like breaking Texas within within 10 minutes and not just not just the McCoy injury but but just solving Texas show me that show me Saban in 2003 in LSU okay well show me a genius who puts together all these parts that no one could ever assemble right all these pure big hunks of raw asset like like money and talent and things like that's what he did at Baton Rouge show me that don't show me this inevitable slow like Alabama under Saban right now is an autoimmune disease. Its success is just slowly shutting off your assets and waiting. And that's horrible for college football. Okay, I have nothing. And by the way, if you want to accuse me of bias, well, I went to the only university that's beaten him twice in the last two years. So kiss my ass. It's not bias. (laughs) Oh, my God, we're cranky. I just feel like what I'm scared of, Bill, is we stay on the precipice. And I have a list that I jotted down at some point in Pasadena of all the things that we could talk about. And instead, to fill these next nine months as you get started on your previews, as I go and do spring visits, as I work on stories about, you know, you know what you're going to be doing for nine months. I I, I could be – we've talked about – we've talked about – we talked about a profile on an animal this morning in SB Nation related to college (laughs) football. I've got economics. I've got recruiting. I've got controversial stuff like, you know – player players and payments and benefits and stuff like that i can go in any number of directions it's the beauty of my job and instead we're sitting here looking at creeping death for the next nine months and maybe it's because i live an hour away from the alabama line i just can't do it and by the way i'll leave it at this for the last time i can separate this whole it's it's not about alabama thing 
if you if you, if it is about Alabama for you, if you if you went to Auburn or Ohio State, you're just tired of hearing about this or whatever. Understand this. I followed Saban around to speaking circuits a couple years ago. It's all his personal hell at the end of the day. I think the beauty of his function is that he's working against his own product, and that's the collective we, the big, dumb, editorial we, which is the first thing a fan base like Alabama embraces. We, us, what we did. Because the, the, the hallmark of his whole system is staying within your job, achieving your own success, and then having that build in a selfless matter to a greater product. So when people stand up and, and, and say got 13 or got 14, that I've, I've seen it happen in public where the most stereotypical Alabama fan in the world gets up on a microphone and I can just see, I can see what's left of his calm soul dying because all of the work, all of the reinvention of various aspects of the sport that he has undergone with, with so much success is now, <laughs> that credit is now being shared by by someone who who couldn't last 45 minutes in his position for the past 20 30 years. Okay, it's not about Alabama. It's oh man that TCU game was awesome. Wasn't it's it? just too consistent. Yes. I mean seriously, <laughs> like we could talk about I, I have questions for you about TCU. I have questions for you about Oregon. I have questions uh, Well, let's go. Let's go. It, it just it, it's it's unnerving, Bill, and I need you if we have to come back here next week, Bill, and talk about this. I'm going to have you're going to have to talk me off of the off the narrative ledge, okay? What? I, I think the good news here is that we just pretty much said everything we can think to say about it. Well, that's probably not true, but um, we probably said enough. So um, sorry. So next week there won't be anything left. We'll have to we'll have to turn the page. Maybe we bring on a guest next week, or maybe that's the week after that. I don't know. Uh, we'll see. Okay, to try and cleanse the palate. More interesting to you, for what you, for, for, from a from a, a Bill C's number standpoint, and I'm not talking about did it fit, did it work, could you have seen this, any of that stuff. Just just in terms of raw interest, reconciling TCU and Oregon, which I feel like just from my I'll give my opinion too. I feel like it's a little easier because you have the the injury and things like that happen in the second half, or what Baylor became in like the last sort of game and three fourths of their season. And I think I would vote for Baylor because as many jobs as Larry Fedora is like associated with, and as much as I hear about Larry Fedora being out on the open market, to have a coach in a post game say, "Man, that guy's really smart. We got our asses handed to us on a coaching level." You don't ever, ever hear that. These guys know that and they talk about it privately. You don't ever say that publicly. And Fedora basically came out and said, uh, "Man, that guy's a he's he's a strategist and he kicked our ass." Yeah, I um, yeah that 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 game left more of an impact. Obviously, tennis or TCU Oregon was fun as hell, and that's that's awesome. Um, but it's easy to explain too. I mean, a Oregon's defense was not very good, and definitely wasn't as good as it was in the first half. And so there was going to be a, a reckoning there. Um, and B, they lost their quarterback, lost their center, and couldn't complete a snap anymore. And that pretty much you know, yada yada yada. TCU came back and won. Uh, it was very, it was really fun to watch, and it was it was one of those great Twitter moments uh, with everybody, uh, with everybody rallying to the game while you were still watching the flash. By the way, thank you for seriously, thank you for tweeting me. I was catching up on Netflix. But I, I really would not have turned it back on. 
if you, because if you were to tell me that Oregon, without knowing about the Adams injury, if you were to tell me they were up thirty-one, love, no way. Um, and and just you know, just so you know th- that you were watching the Flash, you know, made my wife admire you that much more. So you've got that going for you. It's a good show. Um, it's not bad. I, I you know I've been subjected to ma- major major amounts of Flash and Arrow over the last uh, couple of months. I think I prefer Arrow, but I uh, I use Arrow for when I'm doing expense reports. Man, we're already getting into some off season right here. <laughs> no, Arrow actually, I. I <sighs> The flashbacks are stupid at this point. The flashbacks are really dumb and pointless and, and really kind of a stretch. But it's the rest absolutely of the show awful. Man. The rest of the show is good. We're, we're going to have to have a, a much more in-depth offline conversation about this. Um, so, I, I don't know. Um, I know that there were I, – I didn't get to watch the game against uh, Texas. I was, I think, at the Big Ten title game. But, man, for Baylor to not sack it in on a bowl game and just go with it, I thought that was pretty impressive. I mean – we talk all the time about the give a damn being the factor in a bowl game. And I thought they, I mean, they obviously gave a damn about what was it? The, was that the Russell athletic bowl? Yes. I mean, I thought they okay. yes. clearly, clearly there was an emphasis to, and maybe it was just an experimental thing on Bryles' part to see how far can we take this modified offense under these circumstances. It's kind of like when you play, uh, I don't know, Madden or any kind of video game where you, you purposely kind of screw with the settings to see how you could do like a survival mode or something. I kind of think right. it was like that. Or like if you play a, I don't play these games, like a Call of Duty and you give yourself like limited ammo. That's basically what Bryles did. <laughs> yeah, this was the AI never caught on uh, against Baylor. No, I, you know, this was against both TCU and, and Texas. They were crazy extenuating circumstances, obviously. Um, and, you know, they, they really, they were trying to improvise a brand new offense kind of on the fly and it didn't work. And so they, yeah, that that happened against TCU with the rain and the and TCU basically saying, "Well, they can't pass, so let's let's gang up on the run." Uh, and then you know, obviously uh, having to go to Links Hawthorne against Texas uh, just completely threw them for the loop. They just didn't have anything to go with there. And then in the in the whatever that was, three weeks or so, three four weeks that they had to get ready for North Carolina, it was basically what advantages do we have with the personnel we have? Okay, so we should be able to run the ball. Uh, we should be able to do zone read type stuff, especially towards, you know, Drango, especially towards the tackles. Um, let's see if we can get away with that. Let's not do another damn thing until they stop it. And they couldn't, they just couldn't stop it. And it, it was, it wasn't that simple. Obviously there, it wasn't like two plays or something, but it was not a variation of very many plays and it just, it worked. And because the, you know, maybe that's, you know, because he had limited ammo, maybe he didn't have to worry about overthinking or getting creative. It was just basically, here's what we can do. We're going to do it all at the damn game. And it worked and it was really cool. And, um, you know, that kind of, that was, that was kind of just a nice reinforcement, honestly, because this year there were good offenses, obviously they're always good offenses, but this year was kind of a, um, a, a frustrating year for innovation. Let's put it that way. Um, and this was a, a good experience just in terms of being able to witness somebody getting creative or, or, or just kind of completely reinventing themselves and going out and winning a, a game with it. That was awesome. Yeah, I, I, I'll go ahead and vote that we come back and, and deep dive on not so much just the North Carolina game because they did do this against Texas because they had to. Uh, but I am I, I was just fascinated to see how fast and maybe it's not that fast. Maybe we just don't know because we're not coaches that they could scrap flip and then modify, you know, what we what we see as the core of their playbook. 
Um, right, three or four weeks, you know, is a decent enough yeah. time if everybody's on on the same page. And, and well, it, the uh, thing about that though, Bill, is like we just got done saying we we said all the time, it's not the only thing you're doing for those three or four weeks, right? Right. So kids have finals, which means re- so you have a reduced practice schedule. Then if you're doing an install, I don't know, we may genuinely have to try and get someone on the phone from Baylor about this because um, the other thing too is again, you're playing North Carolina. You you lost the game against Texas that would have put you in the Sugar Bowl, right? Yeah. Yes. Uh, so. Which, by the way, what a game that would have been! <laughs> that would have been fun. That would have been that would have been hands down the the funnest uh, game I think on the bowl <laughs> slate. Um, but it sucks that we didn't get it. You could have you could have just wrote it off, and they made it. They made a, a conscious decision. You know, last year I think it's kind of funny. I think they were really pissed off about losing the Cotton Bowl last year as much as Ole Miss was pissed off about the way they lost the Peach. So uh, maybe the tide is turning on these New Year's Six bowls mattering to to guys. I don't know. That, that, that's a that's a broad assumption, but it, it felt like the teams that didn't perform last year made it a point to come out and and do something about that this well, year. Well, that right there is is certainly proof of like a the, you know one of the biggest um, the most important things when it comes to bowl season is who cares to be there and who wants to win. Yes, and the teams that do. I mean, that's why it was driving me crazy. Like everything else on this show in this episode, I, I was being driven crazy. Um, the, the, everybody talking about how terrible bowl season was. Like, yeah, if you started watching games on December thirtieth, then bowl season was pretty terrible. But there was like there was almost two weeks of mostly really fun games before that, and it's not their fault that you chose not to watch. Yeah, bowl I, season. I thought was, the undercard probably the undercard stole the show awesome, this year. Right? You know, when I when when Kirk Herbstreit was kind of complaining about too many bowls, and I I kind of you know got you know crabby at him on Twitter, I had counted it up. 15 of the first 18 bowl games were somewhere between really fun and pleasantly watchable. And like 11 of those 18 were decided by like 10 or 11 or fewer points. Um, lots of competitive, and, and you could really make the case that part of the reason for that is those guys, those teams cared to be there. Yeah. And that's a huge thing. And, and um, you know, that's, you know, not to say that some of the teams that got smoked didn't care to be there. Cincinnati didn't care to be there. Um, I, I'm I'm confident in saying that one. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, just knowing people at Cincinnati, I I think they knew what was happening. I mean, Eddie Grant and, and Darren Henshaw leave for Kentucky. I think that was sort of in the works when that happened. You fly across yeah. the country to Hawaii. Um, I think there was a focus on some things that are going on in recruiting and some some changes in the admin. And then also, I feel like yeah, it was probably not the kind of thing that you focus in on a lot of those seniors for. And that that's another thing too is our. our we haven't talked about this. We talk about the obligations for staff. Are the players checked in on it? I mean, going back and looking at the schedule now, like, give me a yeah, give me a Duke Indiana pinstripe bowl. You know, I know it ends with a crazy call. You know, that was great. Give me Beamer's last game that ends up being a hundred combined. You know, more than a hundred combined points. Give me that game. I, I thought Georgia Southern's comeback against Bowling Green was really fun to watch. I thought that. Oh, that was- that was a blast. Um, I mean, yeah, you, you there's a lot of consistency in, in, in terms of the entertainment value here. Um, it was a – the Music City Bowl wasn't really fun to watch, but it was interesting to watch. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know how like how, how we chalk that up. but And by the way, I, I mean, I, I've seen an abbreviated replay of the Peach. That was a great game. It that wasn't was, yeah. necessarily like a, a, a back-and-forth, tight, sort of dramatic feeling, but it was, it was a good game. Yeah, it was interesting. And that's the thing, too, is like some of the games don't have to be close to be interesting. Yeah. Uh, and that was one of them. And I will say, too, um, 
I still think having watched good portions of, of 39 of 40 bowls, I did not have the option of watching Colorado State and uh, Nevada. Um, I think the first half of the Heart of Dallas Bowl between Washington and Southern Miss was the most well-played uh, of any half of, of bowl season. Both teams just making diving catches, making plays, really wanting to be there, really wanting to win, close game for a while, better team pulled away. That was, that was a lovely college football experience um. in that, you know, if nobody was watching that whole day, that whole day, Marshall UConn wasn't that great. No, um, it was, it was close, but it wasn't that great. But you know, Washington, Miami, Washington State, Miami in a snowstorm. Washington Southern Miss, Indiana Duke, Virginia Tech, Tulsa, even Nebraska UCLA to some degree. That was a really good, fun day of college football. Uh, and, and if you didn't start watching until the next week, that's on you. You brought up something that I, I, I forgot about. I was going to ask you. Um, where do you think on dumb bowl? Maybe not dumb bowl bounce because it is the heart of Dallas Bowl, but. Uh, I, I know you haven't started and you start in like six weeks and you're not going to start with the Pac-12. But like, tell me and everyone else about like 2016 Washington. It, start, it starts to look interesting. Never mind bowl bounces. Okay. Um, have you looked at the recent S&P Plus ratings? Aren't they a lot? It's okay, to, it's okay to say no. It's okay to say no. I have not looked at post-bowl. The last time I looked okay. was when we were doing this show. But I, but I do remember seeing them in, in individual parts of the S&P looking, showing up a lot sooner than they, I thought they should have. They are 12th. Okay, that's a lot sooner than I thought they were. Okay. <laughs> now, that, that includes a bowl bounce. They were 20th at the start of bowl Okay, season. all right. Yeah, I have not seen that then. And part of that is because there is a ton of teams really, really clustered together. And so there's really no separating 12 and 20. But 12th at 7 and 6. <laughs> um, and I can completely justify it, too. They are kind of a little bit like Arkansas was last year, a little bit kind of like Tennessee was this year. They, they either blew you out or lost a close game. Okay. And from a numbers standpoint, you know, obviously you might never get over the hump in those close games like we were talking about with Tennessee. But uh, from a number standpoint, all the, all the numbers see from Washington is that they were frequently phenomenal. And they were crazy young and frequently phenomenal. And that usually says very, very, very good things about your future. Uh, you know, the Washington, the defense was the story most of the year. They're, they're ninth in, in my defensive ratings, only 37th in offense. They, they, were, they were, you could tell they had a freshman backfield in offense. They would look spectacular one game and very, very, very mediocre the next. Uh, so yeah, they have to mature enough to figure out how to win close games. Otherwise, they're still they're you know their schedule's tough enough. They're never going to win more than eight or nine games. But on average, they were frequently awesome, and that's I, I can't say enough about that. I thought I you know I had no doubt that Chris Peterson was probably you know was going to do pretty good things there. Yeah, uh, I, I I completely wrote them off. I think the preview was basically for 2015 was you guys will probably be pretty good in 2016. That that was the whole. Because uh, they were just so, so young, and they were so much better than I anticipated. So I can't wait to see The only thing I can contribute here is that I heard going in, in during – at the end of last la, – la, excuse me, at the end of last offseason talking to some Pac-12 guys, I've, I, I got the distinct impression that Peterson had to clear the locker room out a little bit. I'm not saying anything but pro or con about Sark. It was just more uh, – I hate this word. It was a cultural thing that he kind of had to shift some stuff over. And that Washington was fine with that, and they were giving him the time. Um, he was. It, it's one of those. It's it's it resonated when it happened. The hire, then it got quiet. He loses to Boise. It kind of disappears a little bit in the way that sometimes Pac-12 things do on a national scale. Right. And then if you go back and you start poking around at numbers and records and things that we missed, 
I feel like this is something a lot of us have missed that this is a yeah. quietly kind of building program. I mean, uh, I just pulled up their schedule next year. Favorable ish. Uh, uh, non conference are three home games against Rutgers, I, uh, Idaho, and Portland State. Um, they get Stanford at home. They do have to go to Autzen and let's see. Probably, I mean, they get USC at home, and then the Apple Cup is at Wazoo, which, wow. I, I don't know about the sustainability of what Wazoo did this year, but hey, that's a pretty cool that's a pretty cool Apple Cup, right? That's yeah. um so okay. All right. I was supposed to go uh we had to shift some things around and we didn't do it this year. We were gonna go write about sort of the, the hidden hatred that happens in the Pacific Northwest around Oregon and Washington, which used to be a big deal, but has obviously leveled way off because of the lopsidedness of that rivalry. Um this may be twenty sixteen may be the year to do it. And again, don't want to jump on another dumb thing, which is Oregon's in trouble. You know, right. this is it. Da 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 da. But uh, mm, they they they're starting to look a lot closer than uh, than well, they ever have they before. If they don't fix, as I joked in the Oregon TCU write up, uh, Oregon's defense was so bad this year that we all got convinced ourselves they had a quarterback problem. Um, they until they fix that defense, that defense fell apart this year. It was really, really bad this year. And until that, until they fix that, until they can get that at least back up to like a top 40 level, they are vulnerable. No, I mean, for reasons beyond Stanford is in their division. Um, but no, I, I pulled up uh, my Washington uh, stat profile. So, you know, each game you get a, a percentile grade basically is, you know, take all the major components, um, break them down into, into a percentile, uh, you know, opponent adjusted, yada, yada, yada. Uh, very, very few teams can match this. They were at the 94th percentile against Sacramento State, 93rd against Utah State, 84th against Oregon, 99th against Arizona, 97th against Oregon State, 91st against Washington State, 95th against Southern Miss. That's one, two, three, four, five, six games at the 90th percentile or higher. I, I, no more than probably five or six teams can top that. That's why they're as high as they are in my ratings. Um, I mean, when they, they still had sketchy games. They lost to Arizona State by ten. That's not good. Um, they, you know, they they hung around with Stanford for a little bit, but lost by, by seventeen. But um, they were frequently awesome, and that's that spells very very good things. And, and that yeah, Apple Cup next year. My goodness, that's going to be fun. Uh, Oregon, uh, you know, I pay a lot of mind to programs down in, in our neck of the woods that that build on anxiety in the off season. It's there. It's kind of funny how. Uh, Fans and media talk about the ruthlessness and how we wish college football wasn't as cutthroat and businesslike. <laughs> but then everyone, like all the fans at Oregon, are pissed that, you know, Helfrich is essentially operating with a very kind hand with his staff. I'll put it that way. I think Matt Lubick's a great coach. I knew him when he was at Ole Miss. Um, him, he, he being bumped up, him, be, or him, he, him, Lubick being bumped up to OC, I, it, I think is, it just keeps consistency, can, keeps consistency there. I'm having a stroke. Um, I think the one that sticks out to people is that Don Pelham is a guy who's an Oregon lifer being demoted back down to linebackers coach. I think after that TCU game, people wanted, you know, they wanted blood and they're not going to get that, but they are, yeah. I mean, they now are out on the DC market, which is where they need to be. I heard um, Wilcox being suggested for that. Um, and that's, that, that that's, yeah, he I mean, was good at Washington. He, he yeah, really, that, for whatever reason, just could not figure it out at USC, but he was good at Washington. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's all about that. I don't, 
I'm not going to pretend to know about the quality of position coaches and whatnot. I don't think uh, Oregon's linebackers were very good recently, but maybe you can make the case that that's because he was coordinating the defense. Um, right. But it, 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 a lot's going to depend on that defensive coordinator. I, I don't really care about Lubick on offense. I think, you know, Helfrich is an offensive guy. So that's not really I, – I can't even pretend to worry about the, the offense as long as, the, you know, the quarterback position is decent. Which, well, let me stop you right there, though. The funny thing, that, that was the rap on Helfrich, though, is that no one ever looked or cared about what was happening on the offensive staff when Chip was there. And then mm. you have a guy take over where it's like, I mean, he, he basically had to walk around to the media with a freaking, you know, like a, a Facebook profile almost, just kind of introduce <laughs> himself because we don't focus. When, when, when you have system-dominant coaches like that, head coaches, we, we tend to just sort of ignore what happens on their side. Which, by the way, I, just to really throw us in a full circle here is, I thought the Spavadol move at Texas A&M was very interesting. Do you really think all that's being run through Spavadol? No. <laughs> I mean, um, I, it was very much a sacrificial lamb by a head coach who's running his own system. Um, I, I saw one name tied to this. This one kind of blew my mind in terms of coaches overthinking. Um, I saw Mazzoni's name tied to A&M now. Uh, okay. I, I mean, great guy. Don't know if he would necessarily mesh with, with what they've been doing. But uh, I just, I mean, Sumlin has been a, a spread guy, a specific tree, you know, branch of the spread for a long time. Right. Um, I, that, I mean, not that Mazzoni's running a, a Saban offense, but um, it, it is at the, it is at best a a pretty strict variation of whatever we're calling the spread. Um, that would be interesting. That would be a pretty big shift by a coach who might be freaking out a little bit. Right? What is um? What did A and M finish in the offensive S and P? Well, let's see. Um, because they Mike fifty fifth. Okay. So, uh, I'm going to generalize it. You could debunk this. I just generalized myself by you know going down the spread road. So go ahead. Right. Inconsistency at quarterback. Uh, replacing a couple skill position guys, generally young on offense, and then also. Man, talk about songs we sing a lot. First-year defensive coordinator. Got to give that time, right? So everybody knows Chavis can be successful at the top of the SEC. Got to give that time. Their so, defense was actually pretty good this year. Uh, yeah, no, they were a hell of a lot better than last year. Yeah, their top 30, their pass defense was legitimately strong. Run defense obviously still had issues, and, and Louisville very much capitalized on those. But yes. the, the defense was a couple of steps ahead of the offense this year. And that blows my mind. I mean, I understand the offensive line talent has gone down a little bit and I understand, um, well, I mean, <laughs> I understand that the, the old, you know, two quarterbacks is none, no quarterbacks thing. Um, but like someone needs a steadier hand. That's those first couple of years. Maybe it was all Manziel, but even at Houston, you know, some, there was a, a swagger to Sumlin teams and they, yes. they were aggressive and just they knew they were going to score points. And at some point after Manziel left, despite all the four and five star recruits, they completely lost that. And I, that 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 surprises me. Uh, I didn't know. Uh, I mean, if, if you hear about with if you hear any report or if you hear a report with any kind of legitimacy to it about a locker room division or, or uh, clicks inside a locker room at the college level, mm-hmm. that's really, really bad. Yeah. The NFL, that's almost a weekly occurrence, and there's a lot of things that happen culturally to combat that. It's one of the big differences between managing a pro locker room and a college locker room. It speaks to a lack of control 
in a big way when you're dealing with that on a collegiate level. And so that's, that may be an intangible that's scarier than anything that we can find in metrics right now for A&M. So, which, which kind of still puts them number one in my anxiety poll. We'll see. Yeah, no, I, it's really thrown me off uh, that they've reached this stage, even if they wasn't going to be a, even if they weren't supposed to become a, like a top five program or something, I realized we were talking ourselves into that. Uh, but even if that wasn't going to happen, that this has happened has surprised me quite a bit. Um, to circle back real fast, did anything um, – I didn't expect Michigan State to get shut out. Um, I did expect them to lose pretty big. Um, I don't think they're going to – I think D'Antonio is has – total control and they, they I think he still has total faith from everyone up there obviously a really ugly showing I don't think Cook was completely healthy I didn't I mean he definitely wasn't healthy in the in the Iowa game that I saw him at I don't think anything major comes of this it's funny isn't it weird how we're seeing this this conversation a stupid one we might add coming out of this this Tulsa article about Oklahoma no one has said anything about changing the wheel at Michigan State right. and I think part of that is probably expectations I mean um, OU has national title banners. And granted, Michigan State does too, but they're all from 50, 60 years ago. Right. Um, and so uh, I think, you know, just being that D'Antonio has created what he has on such a, a, a consistent basis there, I mean, I guarantee if you dig into the Michigan State internet, you can find people, you know, we're never going to win the big one until we, uh, you know, recruit blue chippers like Alabama or whatever. I'm sure you can right. find that, that strain of thinking. Um, but... I mean, I, I think that they probably just had a, a better sense of reality than, than maybe OU does right now in terms of – I mean, it was a terrible showing, obviously, but it's, it also kind of backed up what the numbers were suggesting in that, you know, they really – you know, that, that, that winning that Oklahoma – that Ohio State game was just an incredible accomplishment, um, not, not something that probably happens that many times out of ten, but it was a wonderful accomplishment. They've won the Big Ten two out of three years here. Um, they just, it's a, that what he has built has been incredible, but I don't, I didn't see too, too, too many people convincing themselves that D'Antonio has built what Saban has built, uh, or that he could. No, and, and, and the biggest, the biggest swing there is recruiting and will always be, but Elliot had a great point in the middle of the Rose Bowl. And it was almost like, sometimes we ask Bud for quotes about recruiting. It's almost like he just gave us a quote in the room and he said, um, he was talking about Iowa, but I feel like it applies to Michigan State. Yeah, uh, for like to like to a seventy-five percent, eighty percent point. Which he said something, and I'm paraphrasing here about Iowa is that Iowa's a great team. Iowa is extremely disciplined and extremely well coached, and what that means is that they play within themselves and they play to their strengths. But they wait for you to make a mistake, and then they just maintain the, their consistency long enough to capitalize on your mistake. When you play a super talented team. Sometimes that that just that that uh, that game plan or that mentality just doesn't apply, well, and that's what I think happened to Iowa and Michigan right. State. That doesn't mean there are lesser. I mean, there are lesser programs in terms of talent, but I think that the approach that's taken with what they built with the long term coaches in both places, that's fine. Maybe at the end of the day, you do have to bring in five stars at some point. To obviously, you don't need five stars to get to this point. But I think you do need it to, to sort of crest the mountaintop. So one of the, my lines has been, uh, when talking about stats or where stats could go and, and whatnot, one of my lines has been that, you know, there are basically three silos for, for building a good team. There's, um, 
there's acquiring the talent, there's developing the talent, and there's deploying the talent. And um, like a team like Iowa, you know, doesn't acquire the talent at some high level. And I, I, I'm a fan of a team that is kind of in the same boat in terms of getting that, you know, those classes ranked between 20th and 40th. I, don't know, I honestly don't even know if Iowa does that. Um, I think that, well, at least consistently. But getting that top 20 to 40 talent, developing it into top 10 to 30 talent, uh, and then, you know, kind of trying to deploy it effectively. And you can make up a lot of ground with the development and the deployment angles. But if the other team is acquiring more talent than you and is then developing and deploying it as well as you, you don't, you, you can't, there's no response. Um, so a team like Michigan State can absolutely win the national title with a couple of breaks. But if yeah. those breaks don't come, they, it, it's not happening. Uh, that brings me to one other point, and I want to spin this off for a, maybe, if not a whole episode, a bigger segment in the future as we get into the offseason. Uh, on my way to Pasadena, I was had a layover in Salt Lake City, ran into uh, Navy head coach Ken Niamatanolo, said hi real quick. Um, I, just so you know, it's not like these people know me by name. I don't want to pass that off and be like, yeah, you know, we're bros. Um, I introduced myself, said we've talked on the phone before, da-da-da-da. By the way, Ken Niamatanolo, Salt Lake City Airport. Head to toe Navy tracksuit. I loved it. Loved it. That dude advertising. And when random people walked up and asked him if he was a, it, what his involvement was at Navy, like some people just didn't know that he was the head coach, couldn't have been a nicer human being. Um, and then uh, I got to Pasadena and I saw Stanford play. Uh, these two things uh, are uh, common in one, one major thing as we go into the next two weeks of the NFL. And that's that David Shaw is apparently coveted by NFL teams and GMs and all that kind of stuff. Ken Niamatanolo just turned down the BYU job. He is Mormon. Um, you have to be Mormon to be a head coach at BYU. It's a big deal. I thought that he did not go that route. I think that Shaw and Niamatanolo are going to be lifers. And I, I don't know if I can find anyone else at this level that I can say that about in 2015. I would not say that about absolutely anyone in the Big Ten or the <laughs> SEC. Um, my one I think, point, and I, I, I'm, we, I dropped this in our um, Slack room as well a couple of days ago. The one, when, when I did the book a couple of years ago, I talked to uh, uh, some coaches for, for the study hall book, and I talked to David Shaw, and as I've, I can't remember if I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but he was intimidatingly nice. Um, yes, absolutely. He, he freaked me out with how nice he was. Like, I was really, really good at getting through my, basically what was like right down to the nose, a 17 minute spiel or so where I get asked the questions I absolutely needed to ask, get through them. And then I'd go, I'd let them off the hook by saying, you know, I don't know how much time you've got left, but, and then they'd say, Oh, I got, got a couple minutes. And then we'd do right. one more question. And that was it. Um, I got to that point with Shaw. Um, first of all, it took longer than 17 minutes because he was giving longer thoughtful answers. Uh, then I got, I gave him the out. I said, I don't know if you've got more time. He said, no, we've got time. And <laughs> I, I, that was the worst interview I've ever performed in my life. Like I had, Why? Nothing. I had nothing. I, I, I was like, Oh, uh, um, so, uh, I, I don't, and then like after stumbling over one or two questions, I asked him if he had anything else to say, because I was at a loss. I, I oh, no. in no way expected him to say, no, we've got time. What else do you want to talk about? That kind of makes, oh man. But that anyway, makes, part of makes that, your fingers tingle. Part, Part of uh, that interview, like since one of the chapters in that book is about, you know, college football uh, and, you know, the value of college football, I asked basically every coach, you know, would you ever go back to the NFL if you had the chance or would you go to the NFL? And all of them, whether they would or not, gave the same kind of stock answer of, 
you know, no, 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 college is where it's at, you know, dealing with the kids and teaching and, and everything. Uh, they all basically said the same thing. He basically said, well, I love Stanford. And, 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 and he kind of, he went on a little bit further, but it gave me the very distinct impression that, well, A, he's, if he's a college coach, he is only ever going to be at Stanford. He's never going anywhere but Stanford. But B, yeah. he might at one point get drawn to the NFL. Not, I, I doubt it happens until he at least gets to a playoff. Uh, well, yeah, and because I, I remember you, you told the story, and that was my counter was that I feel like he is, and because all the questions in the post game press conference were, I mean, there was a little bit about the McCaffrey Heisman snub again, another conversation for another podcast, <laughs> and then the, um, you know, if you could play, I think someone asked him if you, hey, if you could play the winner of Clemson Alabama in two weeks, would you do it? And of course, everybody laughs, but, um. Maybe I feel good about the lifer thing because I feel like there's a consistency afforded to him and a uniqueness afforded to him at Stanford yeah. that even if he does go to the playoff and wins one of the games and then loses in the national title, just I'm making this up as I go. Um, I think he would be able to come back, take stock in the fact that the you know the the consistency at Stanford in terms of the way their economics are set up with the private donation structure, the quality of that freaking degree that he gets to pitch. And then also how that translates into the system that they're coaching on the field and all of that kind of stuff. I think that he would weigh, it would have to be a top job, man, because I I think more and more coaches are looking at the, that, that the pro jump life cycle as being so bad and brutal. And, um, you know, a lot of pro coaches that jump down don't ne- aren't necessarily treated that well. I think a lot of them hate having to go back to college because of the things that they were afforded in the league, and you know, having to recruit. Yeah, I mean that being the biggest one, but also I think having to recruit and having to deal. You know, you, you deal with one rich a hole, or maybe <laughs> maybe two rich a holes when you're when you're a uh, when you're an NFL head coach. You know, Jerry Jones is bad, but he's the only one. If you're at Arkansas, you deal with 55, 60 sometimes. So that's a big difference. Um, and I, I just think that it, it's going to be different for Chip Kelly if he goes back to college. I don't think he's going to. I think he's going to stay in the league. Um, obviously, he would be coveted. It was different. You know, Spurrier had demand, Saban had demand, that kind of stuff. But I just feel like Shaw, if, it's just such a perfect fit. It's so hard to find a better fit. It's funny, Bill. I'm th- I'm sitting here thinking and trying to compare fits culturally, the dynamic and all that stuff. And people, are, you can call me out on this. I think the next best fit is a guy who just got hired, and that's Justin Fuente at Virginia Tech. I really do. That could be interesting. He's really organized, really, really organized. Right, but his organization, his diplomacy, the way he's yeah. built his staff and all that other kind of stuff, I just think that fits Blacksburg so well. And yeah. as long as they recruit, I – it's probably the best hire I've seen in years in terms of fitting a program. I don't mean getting the best coach for the best possible. Like I just mean uh, when, when two halves connect, I really don't, I, I can't think of a better one. I mean, people are probably screaming at me right now saying freeze the old miss because he was a native son and he knows how to recruit and all that, but it's a different thing there. You know, he was almost at Florida last year. Yeah. Um, I think in Fuente, you do get a guy who maybe lifer, to, to bring this back around, maybe lifer should be defined as 15 to 20 years now. Cause I don't know if we'll ever see a true lifer again, but um, I mean, if you're Niamatanolo, you don't go to BYU and you run a triple option. Who's hiring you? <laughs> yeah. Do you think he would go to Georgia tech if Johnson retires? I don't know if tech wants to stay with the triple option. If it's not with Johnson. 
Yeah, I don't. I absolutely don't think they do. Um, and that's. A I shame. think they would. I think they would take take it to kind of take it in the teeth for a year or two in terms of changing the personnel out, um, and then they would go back to something you know a little more general. I really don't see that. Like Tech would. I don't think he's built anything beyond himself at Tech. No, no. that's my assumption. Um, I was actually kind of. I I, I love having uh, Niamatololo at, at Navy. If he stays there fifty years, I'm I'm thrilled. Part of me was kind of rooting for either him to leave or for Ivan Jasper to get the, the Hawaii job just to spread that tree out a little bit more. I think yes. Ivan Jasper is very much ready for it. Um, I, well, That's, the, I, other, that's I, the second bias of this podcast, isn't it? Right. Is that we're, number one is the AAC and number <laughs> two right. is the triple option tree. I think that's fair. Yeah, probably. And, and I, I say Ivan Jasper is ready without, without having ever spoken to him or knowing anything about his organizational abilities, his recruiting, anything. Uh, but just into uh, it, it, you know, it just feels like he's been successful as an offensive coordinator for a long time. So let's let's spread that around. Let's let's build that tree. So and I thought that would have made a per, that that would have been perfect for Hawaii. Maybe he said no. I don't know. I I heard he was going to t- interview or was you know they were trying to get him to interview. So maybe he said no all along. But um, no, I, I was really hoping he would get the Hawaii job and spread that around a little bit. Hey, uh, we should make a note. We can have Bud on at the height of recruiting. We should figure out if it's harder to recruit to like a super, super poor, bad team in the Sun Belt or something or the MAC, or if it's harder to recruit to Hawaii. I think it's harder to recruit to Hawaii. Yeah, I think so. I think absolutely. Like, I, I absolutely think so. Which, which, by the way, who's the worst team in the MAC this year? Eastern Michigan. It's always Eastern okay. Michigan. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I was always thinking of those teams that like cycle in and out depending on the coach. Like, oh, you know, uh, Bowling Green had a really bad year. Now they're 12-0. Uh, yeah, I think it's easier to get a kid from uh, Ohio that plays at a good Ohio school, maybe got passed over as a two-star prospect to go to Eastern Michigan than it is for him to go to Honolulu. I think that's the problem. Yeah, and I, th- I think that you know what they have on the island in terms of what is it, St. Louis High School? Was that one of the na- major? I-, I think you could run the option better. Than, you you either have to go full on option or full on crazy. Uh, you know, uh, I almost said air raid, but uh, that shotgun option of Fritz's would I think be gangbusters out there. Yeah, uh, you need something. Uh, you run and shoot a little bit more. The run and shoot. That's what I was thinking of. Uh, like with, the, with with Colt Brennan, I think you need you need something that is. I hate the word gimmicky, but this is where people would use it um, in certain instances. You need something that's unique. And run and shoot, or as my father once yelled 15 rows up from June Jones, the MFing Chuck and Duck. Yeah, Chuck and Duck, that was popular too. Um, uh, so anyway, we've, we've gone we're, we, we've, way too long. And really, we, we used like eight podcasts worth of good material today. I, I feel kind of bad about that. I'm because. terrified what like the fourth week of February is going to bring us. Seriously, Some man. of these things we're going to circle back around on, and also I want to solicit again to our listeners. We didn't do questions this week because we're still technically in the season. Uh, help us fill the gaps if there's anything you heard today. Um, by the way, there was a listener who asked me a really interesting story oh, about oh, – oh. um, yeah, Go ahead, but that reminds me that I had a, a listener question too that I think you – Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go hang ahead. on to mine. Yeah. Uh, m- mine was where he basically asked you and I from like a um, off-field and then and then a, a numbers perspective to sort of uh, engineer like a, a second earth scenario for Southern Miss moving up. Um, I got your email. It's really cool. We're going to jump into that. A couple of you guys, we love obtuse things like that. We love weird, you know, don't ask me what we think about, um, you know, who's going to win a particular game. Throw the weirdness at us because that's what's going to sustain us through the offseason. So whatever, you know, this is y'all's podcast. Thanks for listening. If you've hung on from the start till now, you are the target demo. Uh, this is your deal. We're gonna march. We're gonna march through this terrible off season together. But you know, 
it's only going to be if you guys can keep throwing a strange stuff to create content out of. So no one wants to hear about my spring visits after I write about them and I get that. And I'm sure Bill loves things that take him away from the, the rigid structure of the offseason preview. By the way, uh, it, it hit me the other day since I start with the worst conference every year and yeah. go to the best. That means this year I'm starting with Conference USA. They actually graded, Is that how, uh, they actually graded out lower than the Sun Belt. Could you, or, or you can tell me no if you don't want to. Can you tell me what the rank? Can you go backwards to the end of the G five? Do you have that? Do you know that? I don't know. The, what do you mean end of G five? Like 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 tell me for the worst to the best of the group of five conferences. I'm just curious. Oh yeah. How yeah, the Sun Belt only barely beat Conference USA, but Conference USA was last, then Sun Belt, then Mountain West, then nice. MAC, then American. The MAC was the second best. The MAC was better than the Mountain West. Yeah, and, and basically it has to do with the fact that um, the bottom of Conference USA and Mountain West were absolutely horrific. Yeah. Um, like, to, just looking at it right here, like, North Texas was 128th, UTEP was 126th, Charlotte was 124th. Um, yeah, a lot, a lot of lot of dead weight in those two conferences. And where did uh, where did Wyoming finish? Uh, they they got up <laughs> up to one fourteenth. Hell yeah, Powder River. Um, Hawaii was a one eighteenth. So yeah, so there, there's okay. some dead weight there, and and Sun Belt basically had nobody that was particularly good besides the two top teams. Uh, you yep. know, the two that weren't even in FBS two years ago. Um, but then after that, they didn't have any at the very bottom either, and that that ended up. So yeah, it's completely. You got Arkansas Usually, State, right? Yeah, yeah, right, well, yeah. That's right. Arkansas State didn't grade out as as well as Appalachian and Georgia Southern did, but they still won. Um, Luke, I, I see. We got to take notes on this because I want to know why. Because I was pretty impressed with Arkansas State. Yeah, I know well, they the, lost the biggest tech, issue but, with uh, Arkansas State was they didn't start playing well till midseason. Uh, for, they all right, there. Stopped. So that, just stop right there. There it is. We're gonna do a whole Arkansas State podcast. There's <laughs> one week done. Check. Got that. Man, I cannot wait till our hour long Eastern Michigan conversation. Um, Actually, you know what, Bill? Let's do it. Let's well, do it. Not? Let's say right now. Let's pick the valley, I, which I I'm just off the top of my head is gonna be in June. We're gonna do 60 minutes. I can't believe I'm saying this because I'm gonna have to help, and it's gonna require more work than I'm gonna want to do in June. We're going to do an Eastern Michigan podcast. Yeah, I'm in. We are going to have no listeners. I don't care. I mean, I care. We will have some. Um, Me neither. All right, let's kill this one. Uh, There's one football game left. Uh, In case you didn't notice, uh, go Tigers. Jesus, God, please. Uh, and by the way, the, the question, and we will we'll come back around to this one, but we've already talked Navy. The question that I was going to bring up in email was about Army, Navy, and goals. We will hold on to that. So. Cool. Yeah, let's do that. Okay. So anyway, bye, guys.